I wanted to share another another illustration that I started to share here. Because I, I, I want to emphasize the fact if you don't change the conditions, you won't change the outcome. And so God can reveal everything to us, but if we don't respond to it, it's not going to be of any use to us. It's not we're gonna not gonna benefit from it. So God's not gonna give us what we don't avail ourselves of. And so we need to so so I want to give another illustration. I started to share it up here. There was a uh well I'll share a couple. They're both from Australia. And I could probably take up the whole five hours doing this. Um there was a big ranch in, in Australia. Well, two of them. One was a big dairy farm. The other one was a beef cattle ranch, about 4,000 acres. And they had a big Canada thistle problem. Now, I shared, I shared about Canada thistle. Canada thistle shows up when your potassium levels are high, your magnesium levels are high, and your calcium levels are low. It's one of those weeds that'll, that'll show up. Because what it's doing is going down. Calcium is heavy, and it usually go, leaches down deeper into the soil. And eventually, it'll, it'll develop a layer. And sometimes, it'll actually develop a compaction layer. And Depending on what part of the country you're in, it can, it may be three feet deep, it may be eight feet deep, and uh, those deep tap-rooted plants are the ones that can push themselves through that hard soil. That's that that high magnesium, so low calcium soil. That's why they can tolerate that soil and they can compete in that soil, and other crops can't. They'll go all the way down deep into the ground after that calcium. And they'll bring it up, and when that plant dies, what's happening is nature is actually restoring balance to the soil. And we look at it as an enemy instead of a teacher, an instructor that God sent to help us to understand that we're incomplete and imbalanced. But anyway, you had these two big ranches right next to each other. They both had a major problem with Canada thistle. And the one ranch decided that they were going to restore balance, balance to their soil, a balanced situation. Within, within four years, the Canada thistle was gone on their farm. They didn't do anything. They didn't put any herbicides on. They didn't spray anything. They didn't till the, the pastures. They just disappeared on their own. The ranch right next to it still had the Canada thistle. And the owner of that ranch, this is just a funny story, so that's what I'm sharing. How hard we'll fight against God sometimes. The owner of that ranch, they sprayed the herbicide and the thistle came back. And they sprayed the herbicide and the thistle came back. And there happened to be this one thistle that was up close to his house that just really annoyed him. And so he had his hired hands go out and dig it out. And he put the dirt back in the ground and it came back. And he had him dig it deeper. I think they went three or four feet down and it came back. And the next time they dug it deeper and they poured kerosene in the hole and they put a can on top of it. And guess what happened? It came back. <laughs> Whereas he could have just learned a lesson of his neighbor. Restoring balance in his soil, the Canada thistle was no longer needed as an instructor, as a teacher and a restorer of balance. And so it went away. And the, and the grass outcompeted it. And so it's a lesson for us in character. When we, when we receive the character of Christ, we have to receive it. It's not enough to believe it. It, we have to actually embrace it. That's the difference between belief and faith. Faith actually believe, embraces the truth and, and lives it in the life. But 
if we don't avail ourselves of that, then don't change the conditions. You're going to get the same same outcome. And we wonder why we deal with the same. God doesn't want us suffering all the things we're suffering, struggling with it. Sometimes I get the I get the idea that we think that somehow or another God's glorified by our suffering. God's not glorified by our suffering unless we we refuse to blame Him for it. Then He can be glorified that even in spite of our suffering. But it's it's as Solomon said that the curse causeless shall not come. There's a reason for it, and God's trying to restore that image. He's trying to restore that truth to help us to remove a lot of those things. They go away because they're no longer needed. Diseases and pest pressure are an indicator of incomplete, imbalanced food. The plant is incomplete and it's imbalanced, and hopefully as we go along, we'll illustrate some of those things um, so that you'll understand what, what brings them in. They're attracted to the plant because it's dying. The plant is dying. And these certain organisms are coming in and they're dismantling. They consider it dead and they're dismantling it. And we either spend, there's only two religions in life. There's faith in God and life because God is the God of life. He's not the God of the dead, but of the living. And there's the religion of death, appeasing and fending off death all the time. Look at it sometime. Look at the religions in the world. There's only two. Did you have a question? Curse causes. Is Proverbs uh, 26.2? The curse causeless shall not come. Um, and God's simply saying, I'm not mocked. What you sow, you're going to reap. But why would you die when you can live? Isn't that what the Bible says? So let's get, so what we want to do is, okay, what is this model? What does it look like? In the 1920s, a soil scientist by the name of Dr. William Albrecht wanted to understand. Now, he was inspired. I want you to see that this, the chemical revolution started in 1840s. Does that, number, does that date, have, does that time frame have any significance? It was in the early to mid-1840s. A whole lot of things happened in that time frame. The devil started up a whole lot of things to counter. Because, I see, the devil understands the truth just like we do. I mean, just like God does. I don't know that we understand. Um, and so he always preempts what God's going to do. He knows what God's going to do. And so he always preempts it, and he always starts some movement off to divert our attention from reality. And so the chemical revolution started then. Well, actually, the research that began on understanding this started then, too. Dr. Albrecht, who actually did his research from the 1920s to the night, well, he he actually went into the 1960s, but he was finally pushed out because he refused to accept the whole chemical, the incomplete and imbalanced chemistry approach. He rejected it. He was he was the preeminent soil scientist in the world, in my opinion, of the last century. And yet, you go to soil science books. Remember, I said that soil science, the soil research is done based on using the cation exchange model, you will not find his name referenced. And he established it. He defined it. And you won't find his name referenced in virtually any soil science textbook that explains it. How could that be? He was also rejected by the organic crowd. 
Robert Rodale, they, there used to be a group called the, the Friends of the Land, and they were led by Louis Bromfeld, who was a Hollywood actor who had become concerned about the the, the fertility of the soil and topsoil loss and, and the deterioration of the soil. And so his farm in Ohio, Malabar Farm, they started doing research on this and applying. He was applying the, uh, the research of Dr. Albrecht and, and several others were several doctors and other people that were were working um, with him. And Robert Rodale, does anybody recognize the name Robert Rodale? He was part of that group. Now, remember, Dr. Albrecht got rejected by the conventional crowd, and they forced him into retirement at the University of Missouri because he wouldn't go along with the, with the chemical revolution. He rejected it. He said it's, not, it's incomplete, it's imbalanced, and it's going to destroy life. The organic crowd abandoned him. Robert Rodale was a purist, and he was a hardcore believer in the, in the natural methods and, and the compost would solve everything. And so when Dr. Albrecht recommended that a commercial fertilizer, what we would call a chemical fertilizer, a commercial fertilizer, it happened to be, I think it happened to be ammonium sulfate, uh, be used, Rodale hit the road, said, I'm done with this. Now, he didn't, it, Dr. Robert Rodale later in life came to recognize that he was mistaken about that. And he actually started promoting more natural rock powders, like you, you'll see the use of rock phosphate and green sand and granite dust and some of the natural rock dust, which are fine if you, if you need them. It's a great way to get, if the, if the materials that you need are in those things. But the organic movement had already had its legs and they ignored him. So you go to most organic gardening books or most organic growing textbooks and you'll see very little about mineralization in them because um, they didn't believe in that. And they walked away from him too. So he found himself pretty much isolated. You know, all the schools of thought left him. And if, and if I were to look at all these schools of thought, you know what it comes down to? The one common factor that they reject is complete and balanced mineralization. They don't want the character of God restored in that soil. It's 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 an interesting thing to me. It's an interesting uh, phenomena that there's this rebellion across the board against God. In every discipline, it shows up, and then you know Satan's behind it. But it's a it's an outright rebellion against against the character of God, and so. He was found, you know, he found, he found himself alone. And how many of you have actually heard of the cation exchange model? How many of you have heard of Albrecht? Some of you have, but you guys are probably more out of the mainstream than, than a lot of people. The university complex openly wars against the cation model, even though they use it in research. And I, I want to give you some help you. Remember that he was talking about in the, in the agriculture and education presentation? To think, the conventional people, one of the arguments they'll give you is, well, it doesn't affect yield. The cation exchange approach does not affect yield, and they're right. And if you didn't know what to ask them next, then you would just accept what they had to say, because they prey on ignorance. They prey on people's, you know, that they don't, they don't know what's being said. It does affect the quality of the product. It does affect its nutritional value, its content. 
It's quantity it doesn't affect, but it's content it does. And there's two different conventional agriculture and really organic agriculture in some ways does the same thing. They drive photosynthetic yield. In other words, they're driving bulk, starch, calories. Photosynthates are calories or energy. And they're using specific chemistry. The devil knows all about this. They're using specific chemistry to drive yield, volume. But they're not, they're not driving biosynthetic growth. Biosynthetic, photosynthetic growth, in other words, would enlarge the cells in the plant. They get bigger. Whereas biosynthetic growth multiplies the cells. And we were called to be fruitful and multiply, weren't we? And the, and the, re, the reality is, is the content is much more nutritious. It's complete. It's balanced. And so, yes, you can drive yield without the cation model, but you can't drive quality. You can't get nourishment. And we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna address some of these things. And so, they, like I said, they pray, there's a, a preying on ignorance where people don't understand. Oh, well, yeah, you're right about that. You know, look at the yields we're getting. But also look at the, the, the epidemics of diabetes that we have, of obesity, of all kinds of health problems. As a result, is the body is getting too much energy and no way to burn it. Another way the Bible puts it is there's a form of godliness, but there's no power. There's no power. You got the energy, you got you can and you'll see, you take away any one of these things and you'll have certain aspects of it, but there's no power. The machinery to burn the energy to make it do something productive, constructive, is not there. And so what the plant does, and they're bred this way. The breeding is done this way so that you breed crops to live on a starvation diet. They can fatten up, and the devil's fattening us up for the slaughter. That it'll fatten them up, and you can get the yield, but all the rest of the, the nutrition that should be there is all watered down or non-existent. And so you look, look, look at the numbers we have. Look how many bins and bushels we have. I don't measure what I do by bins and bushels, but that's how stuff is sold. In all fairness to the grower, you know, when they go to the marketplace, they get paid by the bin and the bushel. And we want food as cheap as we can get it, which is a mistake. But we want food as cheap as we can get it. And so the more volume they can produce... And, and the farmer doesn't get paid to mineralize, and we need to we need to change that attitude. He just doesn't get to, he doesn't get paid to do it, and so he's going to produce as many bins and bushels as he can because that's what he's going to get paid for, and all he's going to get paid for. And if we want to be nourished, we got to look at things a little bit differently than that. So, yes, if you're going to want you you can take those art, you can make that argument. And everything, but it's if you look at the whole picture, which the devil always tries to keep part of the picture out of sight. Part of the truth he wants to keep out of sight, but if you look at the whole picture, the cation exchange model is essential to eating for strength and not drunkenness. And drunkenness is not drunk, just drunkenness from alcohol. It's checking out from life. It's drowning out life so you don't have to deal with the realities instead of engaging yourself in life and being nourished by it. Do you have a the criteria he used is the same criteria I shared with you. It had to be, well, when he first went into it, he didn't really go into it under those conditions. What he simply wanted to understand was how did the soil actually work? He went to nature 
And, and his philosophy was, let nature instruct you. Don't you instruct nature. And so he went to nature, and he, he learned from it. And so his team of researchers over 30 years, from the 20s to the 50, through the 50s, what they did is they took a soil and they spun it in a centrifuge. Because he knew he from J.B. Orr, who was another researcher out of England, who had written a, written a book, uh, I can't remember the name of the book, but in essence it showed that different pasture grasses had different nutritional content. And so Albrecht became curious, and it goes back to, there were researchers in Russia, there were researchers in Holland, there were researchers in England who had started this process, and it went back into the 1800s. But Albrecht wanted to know, well, how did it all work? And, and another researcher discovered that there was, and we're going to get into that, of how the, the cation, how that's actually structured. But he wanted to know. So his researchers, they started, they, they took the soil and they know that there was a colloidal content to it. And when I say colloidal or colloid, it's when you, excuse me, get to the tiniest particles in the soil that they'll suspend in water and they won't settle out. And we're going to talk about that a little more here. We're going to start defining some of this stuff, but I want to give you a general idea of what, you know, how this all progressed. So they spun the soil out until they got down to colloidal clay that was looked like Vaseline jelly. It was it was kind of clear and it was a jelly-like consistency. And then with electrodes, they stripped it of the cations. And we're gonna we're gonna go over all this, so don't worry yet. Stripped it all the cations. They started putting different combinations of nutrients back on it. And over decades of research, they figured out what. And then, and then they would feed the crops that they they experiment with. They'd feed them to animals, and they see what the response was. And it's you, you can read all this. You can read a lot of this research. Thanks, thankfully, it was saved. But um, he would take rabbits and make them infertile, and then he'd take those infertile rabbits, and within a week or two, they were fertile again, just by changing the nutrition that they were getting. And so. They put a tremendous amount of research in this. And then he thought one day, you know, there's a lot of places in the world that grow really good crops. So they decided to go in and analyze those. And the model that they developed looked very similar to the models where the most fertile soils were. And then he decided on uh, humus was organic matter, humus, which is organic matter broken down into the most stable form. It's the most basic form. He said, we should measure that and see what it is. And so they, they measured the humus. True humus, not just compost or organic matter, but true humus. And it was identical to that same model. And so what would you pick to use? Whenever they applied this, and it didn't matter where they applied it, it didn't matter what crop they applied it on, Things grew their best, absolute best. Disease, pressure, insect pressure, weed pressure, all went down and in some cases completely disappeared. Yeah, it had the same balance, the same combination of, of nutrients. See, when you put um, organic matter on the soil, and by the way, in, in, organic, in organic circles, more compost is put on soils than nature ever does. Nature never puts that much quantity on at any given time. It just doesn't happen. But we're trying to compensate. We're trying to make something work for everything that doesn't work for everything. 
And so there's an overload of that. But what happens is the biology in the soil will eventually break that organic matter down, volatilize a lot of it back into the air, the air elements, the nitrogen, the carbon, the oxygen, the hydrogen, will volatilize it back into the air. And it'll eventually bring that down to that most basic form back into balance. But what you started with was this big mountain, and what you ended up with is this little pile of that. And so, so anyway, we need to get to kind of defining some of this stuff, but I want to uh, finish up. With it. So in essence, he established, one, how the soil actually worked, and we're going to talk about that, how it actually worked and how it actually worked its best. And so, and, and then he also discovered that most soil, you know, not most soils, all soils are not that way. Some soils are closer than others. And it's kind of like having children. You know, some people get good ground and things go great for them. And, and they say, look at what kind of farmer I am. And some parents do the same thing with their children. You know, they get a, a child with a, a pretty good disposition and, and things go wonderful and stuff like that. And this other poor parent over here has this child. It's just a wild thing. And they say, well, they try to tell him how to be a parent until they have the next child. <laughs> so, um, so some of us some of us are better than others. But we're not to compare ourselves among ourselves because what is it what does James say about if you've offended in one, how many have you offended in? All of them. If we're incomplete and imbalanced, we're incomplete and imbalanced. And if God wasn't if God wasn't helping to you know check that deterioration we would all eventually get that bad. So be thankful for what you have, but don't be too judgmental of the person who's got all kinds of battles. They have to yeah, pat Sean on the back before you leave today because he's got, his, <laughs> he's got some battles <laughs> with what he's got. Okay, so let's... So we have to do some definitions here. In the soil, you have what they call texture. And in essence, we're, we're, we're looking at this mineral component now. And so you have bigger pieces of rock, and those rocks get smaller and smaller and smaller. And so in soil, they, soil science, they define those, what they're called. And they're the certain sizes, and we're going to skip the gravel and boulders and all that kind of stuff, which are the bigger ones, but you have, you'll have sand. And it doesn't have to necessarily be quartz. And you know, we think of sand as beach sand and everything like that, but it's just the size. So it could be a size of, of granite, it could be a size of um, apatite rock, it could be a size of basalt rock or whatever it is, it's just the sizing. And then you have silt, which is a smaller particle. And then you have clay. Now when you get down to clay, the chemistry actually changes and it turns into a crystalline structure. And they call that a, 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 a it becomes a it charged, it actually becomes a charged particle. And we don't have the time to go into the clay chemistry here and all of that, but there's different kinds of clays. Some are more fertile than others. Uh, weather ages them, and we're going to talk about that in the fifth session on the environmental influences and, and that part of the, the growing system. But to compare their sizes, um, a sand particle would be maybe the comparison of a 747 jumbo jet. And a silt particle would maybe be the size of a an eagle, and a clay particle would be more like a hummingbird in relation, in relation to size. So it's very small. And, and even when you get down to the clay, 
it's not all what they call colloidal. But what happens is it actually changes. It's no longer just a, a smaller piece of rock. When it gets to be a clay, it actually changes and becomes a crystalline structure. It completely changes its form. And, that's, and when it does that, it actually develops a charge to it. And so it has, it'll have a negative charge on the, the surrounding parts of the, of the clay. Are you following me? With, on the surface, it'll have a charge. Now, cations are positively charged elements. They have a positive charge. And what, do you, what did you learn in school about opposites? Opposites attract. Okay. And so cations are, are elements or compounds that have a positive charge to them. The clays have a negative charge to them. Now, they actually have some positive charge to them as well. But I want to focus on it. the primary focus needs to be on the, it's primarily a negative charge. And so the, the positively charged elements are attracted to it and are what's called adsorbed. In other words, they stick to it. You have like Velcro, you know, Velcro, and you put it together and it sticks together. The charge attracts them to each other and they're attracted on the surface. They're held on the surface of the, of the clay. You see that picture? They're not absorbed into it, but just held on the surface. And, well, there's also, let me, let me see, there's also anions. Anions are the, let me write that down. And we're going to talk about the different, the different element, nutritional elements that are, that are each. But the anions have a negative charge and they're not attracted to that negative charge. They're repelled, you know, as we learned that too, that likes repel each other and everything. So, in the soil, when these colloids form, these clay colloids form, they'll attract these positively charged nutritional elements. Now, the primary ones are, are uh, well, let's give you the positive cations that could be on the, that could be actually held on that clay. is calcium, magnesium, potassium, sodium, and those are the nutritional elements. And then there's hydrogen and aluminum. Which are both non-nutritive elements. Calcium, magnesium, potassium, and sodium. Sulfur has an, is actually a negative charge. Sulfate, calcium, magnesium. The K is for potassium. The K is there because the German is calcium, and that's what they use to identify the element in the periodic chart. Um, and then the, the Na is sodium. It's natrium. It's another where they use a different language to <laughs> identify the the element, and so you have Na instead of a instead of something that's related to S. And then the H is the hydrogen, and then the Al is the aluminum. And the top four are, are nutritional elements. The bottom two are not nutritional elements. And what happens what happens in this dynamic is it's, it's the acidity of with the well. Let me let me finish. The the humus in the soil is also a colloid. It also has a charge to it just like the clay does. It has the, the negative charge to it. But it has, a, it has a capacity above the clay of 32 times. It can hold 32 times what the clay can. But the clay content in the soil is, is much higher than the humus content. I mean, the, yeah, the humus content. So, and we'll talk about that a little bit later, how you can change the, the, the conditions of your soil. So, when you talk about cation exchange, what you're talking about is the clay colloid and the humus colloid holding these nutritional elements 
and then exchanging them with the, another colloid, which is the plant root. The plant root actually has a charge to it as well. And so within that, within that environment where the root grows through the soil, and it, it, there's a lot more to it. We can't you know, get into all the details. There's biology in that whole scenario as well too. But what the plant will do is it'll give off hydrogen, which is an acid. And once it gives off enough hydrogen, it'll knock off some of these other nutritional elements that the plant needs. And it'll trade hydrogen for calcium, hydrogen for magnesium, hydrogen for potassium or sodium. They have a ne negative charge to them. Their surface has a negative charge to it. And they're holding these positively charged cations. Cations are positively charged. The top four also are alkaline forming. The bottom two are acid forming. And so in, that, in the root zone, the, the root is also a colloid, and you have this, this exchange going on. It's a giving. Does that sound like a familiar principle? They're all giving, receiving and giving, receiving and giving. And so if the plant comes along and say your, your, your colloids, your clay and your humus colloids are filled up with the calcium, magnesium, potassium, sodium, and they start exchanging hydrogen, the acidity for the, for the nutrient elements, the calcium, magnesium, potassium, and sodium, which are nutrients, what's going to happen over time? Pretty soon your, your colloids are going to be filled with what? Hydrogen? And the, the nutrition, nutritional elements are, are depleted, right? We talked about, I was briefly talking about pH, and we'll get to that in just a second. But um, this is actually how the soil works. And how then the acidity on the, on the colloid, the soil biology can actually take it, or it can be exchanged with the rock fragments in the soil. And the acid actually leaches nutritional elements out of the, the rock material, the silt and the sand-sized particles. It can be even bigger than that, too. And can exchange that acidity to the rock, releasing more nutrients that will attach to the colloid, which will exchange to the root for more acidity. And that's how the soil actually works. Are you guys follow me on how nutrition is supplied to the plant? You now know more than most farmers. And then they, so it's the, people think that acidity is bad in the soil, but what Dr. Albright, Dr. Albrecht understood was that acidity actually drives the nutritional process in the soil. And so, yeah, right. So you have the, the in respiration, the plant root will give off the hydrogen, remember it's a positively charged acid. It'll give it off and it'll trade it on the colloid, exchange it for the nutritional elements, the calcium, magnesium, potassium, or sodium. And there's a dynamic going on here. This system is a lot more complex than people realize, and we, may, we oversimplify it. But it's a beautiful, I, I mean, it, it's an orchestra going on it, and with all kinds of instruments coming into play to maintain, to maintain uh, health and growth and everything. The problem is when we mess this system up, or we, we leave parts of it out, or we disrupt parts of it, that we, we start to have problems. But yeah, the root gives off the, the hydrogen. It exchanges the colloid. Assuming that it's on there, it exchanges on the colloid for a nutritional element. And then the acidity is traded from the colloid as it builds up to the rock fragments in the soil. And the acid leaches the nutrients out of it and breaks down the, chemically breaks down the rock materials. And then transfers the if, if depending on what it is, if it has calcium and magnesium, potassium and sodium, back to the colloid. The plant needs more, gives off more hydrogen, 
that exchange process, that giving process just keeps happening. Now, you can obviously see one th situation in there. What if the parent, what if the rock material in the soil runs out? Or what, what if the rock material in the soil is not balanced? So let's say your parent material is granite. We dealt with granite at, uh, out in Colorado at Eden Valley. Um, what it, say it's granite. It's high in potassium, high in magnesium. It's not, it's not about the balance that we're going to talk about here in a minute. So what's going to take the, what's going to be exchanged all the time there? You're going to get a higher level of potassium and a higher level of magnesium being exchanged, and you're not going to have as much calcium being exchanged. And over time, what's going to happen is you're going to have too much potassium, too much magnesium, and not enough of the others because that's the parent material. That's why you need to know about the, disp the parent soil, the disposition of the soil. Um, the, the earth, again, the earth is deformed. The flood messed it up, and so things are all mixed up in different form combinations. They're not what God created in the beginning in the balance that it would have been before the flood. And so the, the soil takes on the, it has the character, the plants that grow in that soil take on the character of that soil, what's there, what's not there, uh, and everything. So this is, in essence, the cation exchange model. And we haven't looked at the other, you know, you've heard of nitrogen, right? And sulfur and phosphorus, uh, and then there's traces of boron, molybdenum. Those are all anions, and they're very important. And so we have to get to those here in a second, you know, how those are handled in the soil. But it's this cation exchange system that drives growth. And when it's balanced correctly, if it, depending on how it's balanced, it'll actually drive photosynthetic growth or it'll drive biosynthetic growth. It needs to drive both of them, both photosynthetic growth and biosynthetic growth. But if it's out of whack, it can, it'll, it can actually drive photosynthetic growth and not biosynthetic growth, and, and you wind up having all kinds of problems, all kinds of problems as a result of that. But anyway, that's, do you understand the concept of how that's working, where things are exchanged in the soil? That's the, that's the cation exchange model. So then what Dr. Albrecht had to do is he had to, he had to um, decide, well, how much of each one? What's a, balance, what's a balanced thing? Is it, does it matter? When God formed us from the dust of the earth, did he just, uh, I don't know if any of you people are basketball fans. I'm not really a basketball fan, but I happened to watch a, a news report, and it was reporting on uh, LeBron James. I don't know if you've ever heard of him, but he does this ritual at the beginning of each game where he throws his dust into the air, and he encants some, um, I don't know what it is, some, Incantation is supposed to bring good luck to the team, or <laughs> I don't know. But I think when I saw when I saw that, I see the dust thrown up in the air. Did God just throw some dust up into the air, and and that's how He formed us, or is there a very specific? Remember, He created us. We, he created us in His image, and so He created us in a very specific way, right? And so we need to know what that is, what that balance is. It's not just random. Unfortunately, with everything all mixed up now, somebody had to figure out, well, what was it supposed to be? Or at least try to get close to what it was supposed to be. And uh, so Dr. Albrecht did that. And he's been attacked ever since then. He's been excluded from any references and, and all of those things because that's what the devil does to people who try to reveal the truth. So then he went, like I said, he went to the humus, he went to the most health, fertile soils and those things, and, and then they did all this rearranging and balancing on this, this colloidal clay that they had extracted. 
to see what combinations worked and worked the best. And these are the numbers they came up with. For the average soil, now this is what they call, I forgot my buckets, I got talking, I forgot to go get my buckets, so I have to illustrate this to you. Let's just have to talk it through here. Each soil has a different capacity. In other words, it has so much, so many of these exchange sites, so much of this colloidal clay. Okay, so it might have, it might have a one, it might have a one gallon bucket, it might have a two and a half gallon bucket, it might have a five gallon bucket. And so then when you're talking about cation exchange, there's a capacity, CEC, there's a certain capacity that soil has to hold these nutrients. And it varies from soil to soil. And so say you have a, say you have a one gallon bucket and you try to put the material for a, a five gallon bucket in that one gallon bucket, what's gonna happen? It won't fit. What if you have a five-gallon bucket and you only put a one-gallon bucket worth of material in it? It's not full. And so it, it becomes important to know what is the capacity of the soil to actually hold that, nu that nutrition. In the parable of talents, and actually where God says that in the parable of the sower where some would bear 100-fold, some would bear 60-fold, some would bear 30-fold, the parable of the talents where it was one talent, two talents, five talents, is the reality is that we each have a different capacity to bear fruit. And so you have to know what that bucket size is first. This is how it works. Then you have to know what the bucket size is. And then this is the combination you want in that bucket. So if you have a five-gallon bucket, you want on the average soil, and I want to change those numbers just a little bit here on you, but um, if you have a five-gallon bucket, that five-gallon bucket, you want 68% of that bucket full of calcium. You want 12% of that bucket full of magnesium. You want, I put three to 7%, and you'll see, I'll explain it why, but Dr. Albrecht actually said two to five. But if you, what he communicated later in his life, you'll find that it's actually probably more than three to seven. Um, so you want three to 7% of that bucket full of, of uh, potassium and one to 3% of the bucket full of sodium. Now there are, there are micro, yeah. Well, you actually have to measure the colloidal capacity of the soil. You have to measure how much colloidal clay is there and how much colloidal humus is there. And then once you know how much is there, that tells you how big your bucket is. It's not so much what's in, you know, what's in the bucket. First, you have to know how big the bucket is. Yeah. Right. In general, you know, they'll call it a low CEC soil or a high CEC soil, or they'll call it a light soil or a heavy soil. And in general, what that means is like a sandy soil is going to have less of the colloidal material content in it, and so it's going to have a smaller bucket. A heavier soil with higher clay content in it is going to have a bigger bucket. Um, but it always doesn't always correlate that way. You can have a big, a heavy soil with a lot of clay, but that clay is coarse clay. It's weathered clay that's no longer active. It's no longer colloidal. And so you can have a low CEC soil and a heavy, heavy clay soil because it's worn out. It's actually a, a, a particle that has a charge to it. Is really the basic definition of it. So there's there's clay colloids, there's humus colloids. The root is actually a colloid because it has a charge to it, as well. CEC means cation exchange capacity. Yeah, yeah. Now this is not everything that fills the bucket. And then uh, you have to look at there's there's micro cations. 
and those would be iron and manganese and copper and zinc and you can go even into the traces in the rare earths of cobalt and and all and all of those there's a methodology that dr albrecht developed to figure out what those other bases would would have so let's say so you have to take into that consideration how much volume of that bucket is filled with the other bases and then you also have to measure how much of that bucket is filled with hydrogen and if you don't measure all of those things there's they have calculations and we're not going to go into them because that would just you know twist your heads all into knots <laughs> unless you had a little more background on it but they they measure all of those things and then they know how big the bucket is well, the only way you can really know this is to have it tested, to have it measured. There's no way to go out and hold it in your hand and say, feel it or, or smell it or look at it and, and know. Because, for example, like in Arkansas, you have some heavy clay soils there, but there's so little colloidal clay in it that it's very poor. Well, we'll get to that. Sean's going to talk about some of that probably in the, in the sixth session you know, kind of addressing that, but you have to send it to it. You have to send it to a lab, and and I talked about this a little bit. It has to be a lab that understands the protocols that Dr. Albrecht developed these under. If you use different protocols, you're not going to come up with the same information, and so that's that's a real problem. Actually, there's a lot of confusion, a lot of confusion, just like the rest of the world in agriculture, because of some of these issues. I think uh, you know I can't speak for him. I know that he I know that he uses the Albrecht system, but there's a lot of there's a lot of people who use the Albrecht system, but it's not really it's and I don't know, so I'm not saying I, I don't really know how he he presents it. Um, but a lot of times the labs that that are used leave out part of these components. They'll leave they won't measure sodium. Yeah, so I I mean you you. The, the question was, did Bob Gregory, uh, does he follow the, this methodology? And I just, I said, I don't, I don't know for sure exactly what he does. I know he uses a different lab. And the lab is capable of doing it, but I don't know what they're doing. You'd have to ask him and, and compare it to, the, to this. It's one of those that can. I'll put it that way. I don't know that they, this is an economic issue for labs. It takes more time. It takes more materials and everything to properly do these analysis. And so a lot of labs have gone to, to faster, easier, cheaper methodologies. And the problem is when you still call it the cation exchange system, but you're not really measuring the total cation exchange capacity of the soil, you're not really getting the same thing. And it can get way off. It can get really way off. And then a lot of people will say they'll use the term Albrecht or they'll use the term cation exchange but it's not the true cation exchange model that was developed by Dr. Albrecht. And so people, they'll have problems. It won't work the way it's supposed to work and say, well, I've got these numbers, but it's not working. We have to ask them questions and find out what those numbers that they have actually mean because they may not mean the same thing. And so when, when I'm talking here, I'm talking about the actual system, the actual modeling that Dr. Albrecht used. There's only one lab that consistently does it. Actually, there's two. Um, they're both Perry labs. One's in Missouri in the United States. The other's Perry in Australia. But I think it's a constant battle to keep both of them from jumping ship because they, <laughs> it's, um, they, they, they just need to charge more to do it. 
because it does take them more time. They just need a charge to do it. I mean, wouldn't you rather pay more money to have correct information than than to get it cheap and then you know it's not reliable. You don't know. And and in fact, even those labs they'll they'll run a different cation exchange test that doesn't include the the exchangeable bases and the the exchangeable hydrogen and and the sodium. And your numbers are completely different. They're completely different. And you try to apply, you try to figure out, well, what am I supposed to put on? And you put it on based on that, you're going to be in trouble. I have personal experience with this, working with people, trying to trying to use a regular, you know, where it's an incomplete analysis, where it's not, a, you'll see a TCEC as opposed to a CEC. And the TCEC means total cation exchange capacity as opposed to cation exchange capacity which could mean a lot of things. What they're doing is they're measuring cations, but you don't know whether they're measuring them all or not. And how do you know if the bucket, you know, what all's in the bucket if you don't measure everything? You don't really know. So again, you have to know that. So cation exchange capacity is just how big the bucket is, how big of a capacity it has to hold these, these nutrients. Okay, so we're just talking about cations here. They do have some ability to hold anions, but it's a different mechanism that, that works with the anions. So first you got to know, you know, how big is the bucket and then, you know, what do I fill the bucket with? And these are the numbers that in general, this is the quantity of these materials that you need to have in order to have a, a, a good soil. There's some details that we would have to fill in here. You'd have to avoid. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's, yeah. When they analyze this, the convention is six to seven. When you take a sample, it's at a six to seven inch depth. Which is a plow layer, what they call a plow layer, because the lab will use that. There's about two million pounds in a plow layer, what they call a plow layer. It's about two million pounds, and so all of their calculations are based on that. So if you do, if you go out and you take an analysis and you take it three inches here and ten inches here, and you know your your numbers may get watered down or they may be too concentrated and everything. So it's, we'll have to go over some of those things with you, which we will do, we'll do later. Is how to you know how to properly get this information by analysis and, and stuff. What they what the what these percentages are called, they're called base saturation percentages. These are all bases or alkaline forming compounds or positively charged elements. And so these are called base saturation percentages. And so here's your bucket. And the base saturation percentages is how big to that bucket, what percentage of that bucket is filled by what element. And so calcium on mainstream, now I should change that, and I'm sorry to do that, too. I should have put it up this way. It can be anywhere from 60 to, 60 to 70. And it all, depends on the, it all depends on the character of the soil. And magnesium can be 10 to 20. A lighter soil, and it comes back to this model here, on a lighter soil that tends to be looser, it'll have too much air in it. And magnesium tightens the soil. And so you need more water holding ability so that you'll go to the higher level of magnesium. There's ways of calculating this all out. And I'm trying to simplify it as much as I can here, but it, it tightens the soil up so it gives you more water holding ability and a little bit less air in the soil. And if you have a heavy soil, you want to open it up more. It doesn't have enough air and it has too much water in it. You need to open it up and so you want a higher level of calcium because calcium flocculates the soil and it actually opens it up. That's why when you walk on a soil and it gives under your feet, the soil is flocculated by calcium. 
and it's like a sponge. It's like walking on a sponge, and it gives and it comes back, gives and it comes back. Well, sand would probably be depending on it. It all depends on the CEC, not not the texture of the soil, which is what you're saying: sand, silt, and clay. Um, if you want to tighten the soil up, you're going to go to a higher level of magnesium and a little bit lower level of calcium. So, now the reason the reason that the experts will tell you, well, they don't know how to get a model soils because they don't know how to change that condition, but it's actually the calcium and the magnesium in the soil that affect the structure of the soil on calcium, yeah. Yeah, because that tightens the soil up more. It pulls it closer together, it tightens it up. Because sand is already loose. And in general, yes, you're going to find out. I remember I shared there's some soils that are so light you can't even, you can go as far as you can on these and you still can't get enough. And there can be really heavy soils and you go as far as you can the other way. But you have to stay within those boundaries, and I'll explain in a second here. You can go as far as you can go, but then, then the quantities that you need, we don't really know how productive soils can be because when you get in those kind of situations, most farmers can't afford to put on everything that, that needs to be put on. You get in, say you, say you have a five-gallon bucket. How much material is it going to take to fill a five-gallon bucket as opposed to a one-gallon bucket? And so you have a soil with a really high CEC, Whereas you have a one-gallon bucket, it may require 2,000 pounds of calcium available. A five-gallon bucket might need 10,000 pounds of calcium. And it's the, it's the balance that matters as much as it is the content that is full. It's not just that the bucket is full, but it's, it's full with a balanced quantity of these nutritional elements. In most cases, yeah. Yeah, there's all there's already some of these there, but if you look at all of them, in most cases they're not in the right balance. In all cases, they're not in the right balance. There can be, not light, not usually. The lighter the soil, if it's a lot of sand, it's it, there's not a whole lot of. I had an acid sandstone soil out in Colorado, just to show you this different. They want to say that everything's the same, but you know what? Eden Valley was a granite-based soil. Where I was, where my home is, was recently, it's a acid sandstone formation, and there's like hardly any calcium and magnesium in it. Up there, we had too much potassium, too much, and hardly any potassium. And uh, up in Eden Valley, because of the parent material, we had tons of potassium, tons of magnesium. We we're actually deficient in calcium. So it all matters on the parent material you're dealing with. You have to know what the parent material is, the source, or the disposition of the soil, if you want to put it that way. Right, you can you can get books. There are books that um, will help you to understand what if certain weeds are growing there. These are probably the chemical conditions, the chemistry or the conditions in the soil, not just the chemical conditions, but the physical the physical structuring, the physics of the soil, and biological activity. They can tell you what those things are. Depends on if you have. I mean, some of that stuff is readily available. Uh, if you really want to learn all that stuff, I mean, it depends on whether you want to fix things now or you want to wait five or ten years or maybe twenty years until you have all of that knowledge to be able to evaluate everything. I don't personally I don't personally want to wait that long. I'm learning it. I, I'm learning it as I go, you know, and it's valuable information because when I go in, I look at somebody's place and I say, well, you got this situation going on just by looking at what's there. And so I pr can predict them. I had a guy. You know the thing is that God is predictable. And true science should be repeatable, it should be measurable, and, and if it's a true model, all of those things will come into play. 
And so I should be able to look at the conditions or look at a soil test and tell you what's going on. And so I had this guy actually up in Woodland Park and he had a little greenhouse and he said, these pill bugs are eating all my strawberries. And I said, you have too much phosphate. He said, how do you know that? I said, because if you have snails and slugs, you know, tearing your stuff up and pill bugs eating stuff, more than likely your phosphate levels are too high and they're not in balance with everything else. And so he didn't, he said, well, I'm going to do a soil test and see. So he did and came back and he came down to me and he was really mad, <laughs> but he wasn't mad at me. He was following John Jevons. He had to grow more vegetables. Have you seen that book? How to grow more vegetables on less ground than you ever thought possible. He was following his general recommendations in the book, which were organic recommendations using rock powders. And he had gotten his, his phosphate levels too high. And so they were out of balance. They were out of, you know, in excess and out of whack. And he was, the pill bugs were coming in. They love phosphate. And the slugs and snails will come in and do that. And they were eating the strawberries up. Slug oil is iron phosphate. Right. They, and they, they overeat it. They overeat it and they get iron toxicity and it kills them. <laughs> but that's why the sluggo, if you ever heard of that, it's a nat organic um, insect control for slugs and snails and stuff like that. And it's iron phosphate and they love iron phosphate and they eat it until they gorge on it until they get iron toxicity and it kills them. So, But it all comes back to the same, the same chemistry. Um, we're going to have to take a break here. And then we'll just we'll have to pick this up. So be thinking of any questions. You know, some of this isn't filled in yet, and uh, we still have physics and biology to do. So, but I need to finish. I need to finish the the chemistry part of it because there's some aspects of the chemistry that are really important, and that's why you have to do this one first. So, let's take a, a 15 minute break, and then we'll hop back into it. This media was brought to you by Audioverse a website dedicated to spreading God's Word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.